Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Who doesn't love to take a ride on an old steamy? Okay, maybe I'm talking to your child with the Thomas the Tank obsession, but it was the golden age of trains that helped build the nation. Coming up, we'd learn about the history of the Connecticut Valley Railroad with rail fan and historian Max R. Miller. His new book is Along the Valley Line. We'll chat with him later. It's certainly not the golden age for transportation infrastructure today in 2018 when you consider the age of U.S. highways, bridges, and roads. The American Society of Civil Engineers last year gave America a D-plus grade in its annual infrastructure report card. That may not be surprising. What transit projects would you like to see in your town or city? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. President Trump has promised a $1 trillion infrastructure plan. It's expected to be announced this month. To tell us more on the phone now is Laura Bliss, staff writer at City Lab. It's part of The Atlantic, covering transportation, infrastructure, and the environment. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm seeing recent reports that are hinting that this big infrastructure plan that President Trump was to announce now will be coming after the State of the Union. Uh, what are you hearing? Um, yes, that's what I'm hearing, too. Uh, now we're, we're looking at sometime in February. And when we talk about this big plan, uh, something we know um, President Trump, when he was campaigning, talked a lot about uh, uh, the nation's uh, aging infrastructure. But when we look at this past year, that wasn't on the agenda, so to speak, of some of the goals that the White House wanted to accomplish. What did happen last year in regards to transportation, if anything at all? Um, it's a really good question. Uh, there was certainly a lot of talk of this $1 trillion uh, infrastructure plan, which um, the president had initially you know, articulated uh, many times um, on the campaign trail. Um, but that's right. You know, Congress did have other priorities um, from tax reform to, um, uh, you know, uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act. Um, but there actually was action kind of behind the scenes um, on transportation, certainly in terms of um, the draft budget that the White House released um, in the spring of 2017, um, where we actually saw pretty significant cuts to um, the budget for the U.S. Department of Transportation um, and also cuts to the um, Highway Trust Fund, which is how we pre- pay for the um, majority of infrastructure projects uh, in this country. So in terms of infrastructure spending, that kind of sets us up for a little bit of a mixed message. Uh, we heard a lot about infrastructure uh, from the president last month after that that deadly Amtrak crash in Washington state. Uh, part of that tweet, uh, he wrote, $7 trillion spent in the Middle East while our roads, bridges, tunnels, railways, and more crumble not for long. So what exactly is his plan from, from what we can gather over uh, the last few months? <laughs> right. Um, that is the $1 trillion question. Um, 
you know, we had heard, um, you know, as as early as the campaign trail, the month before the election, that this trillion dollar infrastructure plan would um, hinge primarily on, you know, what what you you, you hear this term, public private partnerships, right? So, the basic idea was to take two hundred billion dollars uh, in federal funding and use that to sort of stimulate, um, uh, you know, draw interest from the private sector to uh, kind of to leverage that amount to, to, to eventually get to a trillion dollars in total investment, um, you know, with the $800 billion, for the most part, coming from the private sector. More recently, uh, we've kind of heard, uh, you know, information bubbling up from the White House, from meetings with, between pre- President Trump and his advisors, that he is sort of less convinced that that is a uh, viable model, um, which I would say many uh, kind of analysts in the infrastructure policy world would agree probably not a recipe for building out, you know, just the uh, immense um, need for uh, infrastructure uh, maintenance and and building that we we have. Um, So lately, you know, we've heard that there will be more of a focus on leaving that $800 billion in investment to um, local and state governments. That must be a, a stressful proposition for state and local governments when they're already uh, struggling with figuring out how to, to pay for certain things. Here in Connecticut, we've had a long-standing deficit. Just the other day, uh, the governor and the state DOT commissioner talking about putting all of uh, the transportation projects on hold here in the state because there's no money in the special transportation fund. So how will states and cities uh, come up with the dollars if this is what the White House is looking for? It's a really good question, and you know, I'll, I'll just say that Connecticut is, you know, by no means alone. Right, um, nearly half of all states faced a budget shortfall last year in 2017, which was, uh, you know, news that did not get super widely reported, but is a is a pretty big deal. Um, you know, we've seen some states uh, actually raise their own gas taxes, and and that's been happening in in pretty politically diverse environments. You know, states realizing that, you know, their infrastructure transportation dollars have been, you know, overall. Um, uh, you know, getting less and less over the years. Um, so that might be one option. You know, there might be cities that look to, um, you know, Los Angeles or Seattle, which have um, passed these uh, massive sales tax measures to raise money for big transportation projects. So there are options, but it's true, um, you know, a, a plan that emphasizes, um, you know, the, the magnitude of uh, state and local funding uh, coming to the table, which, which seems to be um, possibly part of the plan. Would, would certainly put certain states and localities um, under a lot of pressure. And how does fallout from the recently passed uh, tax, uh, uh, tax overhaul impacting how mayors of cities and towns are thinking about, and governors are thinking about how to, to pay for very necessary projects in their communities? Um, right. I mean, it, it, you know, this is, this is uh, quite a number of mixed messages we're sort of dealing with here, right, because we, we do have this new tax law um, and, you know, which the Congressional Budget Office has told us is going to add about a trillion and a half dollars to the federal budget deficit. Um, So (laughs) there's that, right? There's the fact that states and and local governments are also looking at, um, you know, state and local taxes uh, being affected by the new tax law. So, you know, overall, uh, we're, we're, we're starting from a picture where, you know, these gov- this level of government is under, you know, it, it just additional pressure. Um, and so to be asked to sort of come up with even more money than, than they already have been um, for infrastructure projects in the past um, is, is not likely to go over well. 
I wanted to bring into the conversation now as we talk about uh, President Trump's uh, uh, upcoming uh, announcement now uh, being reported after the State of the Union address of how uh, he hopes to overhaul the nation's infrastructure uh, with a $1 trillion uh, plan. On the phone with me um, is uh, Laura Bliss, staff writer at City Lab. It's part of the Atlantic. She covers transportation, infrastructure, and the environment. And on the phone with us now is Congresswoman Elizabeth Estes. She represents Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. Welcome back to the show, Congresswoman Esty. Great to be on with both of you. Thanks so much. Uh, we were talking about the White House plans for uh, overhauling our uh, infrastructure in the nation. Uh, what's your take on what has been discussed, this idea of, of putting uh, $200 billion of federal money uh, into a pot, but then coming up with some private uh, uh, investors and uh, states and communities uh, competing for dollars to, to pay for very necessary projects in their, in their towns? Well, it, I, I think it's important to understand, and I've now met with folks at the White House three or four times on this, including as as recently as Tuesday of this week, because I'm I'm vice-ranking member of the Transportation Committee on the House side, and I'm also uh, Democratic co-chair of a big bipartisan working group in the House, the Problem Solvers Caucus, and we just released a big report yesterday with proposals on infrastructure. And what the White House is focusing on um, is not bad to the extent that they're talking about additional additional resources to transportation. Now, it's not enough. Let me be very clear. And I'm sure Lydia would agree with that. Not enough, right? We, we have trillions of dollars we're behind, particularly when you fold in, say, clean water systems and wastewater systems, which are in and of themselves probably a trillion dollars um, in shortfall over where we need to be. Um, but our report on the House side, what we've, what our problem solvers group has really focused on is that baseline funding. How do we deal with the chronic underfunding right now of the Highway Trust Fund, which is impacting states like ours that rely heavily on being able to get those federal matches? How are we going to make sure we get our ports dredged, and that's the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund? How do we make sure that we're committing to airports so that you don't have what happened last weekend in New York City with pipes bursting and terminals being evacuated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of basic infrastructure, and that's what our report really focused on, the utter necessity of Congress modernizing how it funds and appropriately committing to sustainable funding over the long haul and, and doing some regulatory changes. And I do want to give a shout out to The Atlantic, which has been really, really good in its coverage on infrastructure issues uh, for a long time now. And, and you know, it's, it's part of what we look to when over the last four months putting together these proposals. Representative Esty, you mentioned the problem, problem Solvers Caucus, the, your report being released just yesterday. So what are some recommendations in, to modernize our, our transportation infrastructure in this country? I see one of them is considering alternative user fees. What do you mean there? Well, I, uh, this is something we've begun to look at in the Transportation Committee. Uh, here's the bottom line. We have not touched the gas tax now in 23, almost 24 years. The purchasing power of what we have is only 60% of what it used to be. Now, that – and Congress has been unwilling or unable uh, to touch that specific figure, which is 18.4 cents on the gallon right now. Now, if it had been indexed at the time, we'd be in a very different – you know, indexed to, uh, to CPI or something else that would be very different, but it wasn't, and that's part of the problem. So we've really sort of lost ground, but in addition – to just the dollar amount, we've also lost revenue because 
cars are much more efficient. Now, that's a good thing, right? That, we think that's really good, especially for our air in Connecticut. We care about that. But with increased efficiency standards, cars, are, cars and trucks are burning less. Mm. In addition, we've got now hybrids and electric vehicles and natural gas vehicles. So you have more and more vehicles that are not even using anything that would be that traditionally would be um, paying into maintaining our roads and bridges. So we're going to have to modernize. That's just an utter necessity. And some of the alternatives are things like vehicle miles traveled. So there's actually pilot projects going on right now in the state of, um, of Oregon where you can elect to have either the total number of miles clocked and then you get um, you get taxed based on those actual miles. You can pay a flat fee if you don't want those miles. You pay a, you pay a pretty healthy price, but if you, for privacy or other reasons, say, I don't even want to mess with this, I don't want this device in my car, you can pay a flat fee. So there are a number of interesting proposals out there. Some people, frankly, some people have proposed carbon taxes. We've I'm sure you've you've heard John. My colleague John Larson is a big fan of the carbon tax to help deal with transportation, and there are other people who like that idea. There are a lot of different things you could do. The truckers have suggested waybills, which would be to be putting charges onto things that are shipped on commercial trucking, on commercial roads. So, so there are a lot of different ways that you could look at it. And our commitment in this report is just to say, you know what? It's hard to deal with revenue. But we have to do it because America's infrastructure is crumbling, and that is costing every American right now. It's costing us jobs. It's costing us competitiveness. And we need to find the political will to move forward on this. Representative Esty, what are you hearing from your constituents? I mentioned earlier to Laura Bliss with, uh, with City Lab on the phone with us that in the state of Connecticut, uh, our special transportation fund uh, is running out of money. Uh, the governor and the DOT commissioner saying that a lot of important projects are being put on hold, including in your district over on I-84. Um, what are you hearing from your constituents about these issues? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, the, the project on 84 is the infamous Mixmaster. The Mixmaster is rated, sadly, in the top 10, or you could call it the bottom 10, worst highway intersections in the world. This is the traffic engineers <laughs> who rate these things. It is dysfunctional. It's aging. And I've had you know, the pleasure of standing underneath it and you can look up through the decking. You can see rusted rebar. It's, it needs to be replaced for safety purposes as well as for better traffic flow. So I hear about it all the time. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Peter Baker, who runs Crystal Rock, one of the big water companies in the state, he's told me that he figures his drivers spend an hour a day stuck in traffic on 84, usually right around the Mixmaster, so every single one of his drivers, that is bad for the environment because they're burning up gas. It's bad for the bottom line. It's bad for his customers. He has to charge more and or pay his people less because of that. That's just a loss to society to do that. So that's the kind of thing. And you multiply that out over you know, 3.6 million uh, nutmeggers. It's a real cost to all of us. And, and that's the way I look at it. A big cost right now to do nothing and a big opportunity if we do the right thing. Puts people to work right now and 
allows us to get to work faster and get home faster and safer if we do the right thing. That's Congresswoman Elizabeth Estee. We'll put out a link to this uh, Problem Solvers Caucus report on uh, the infrastructure at, at where we live. I want to go back to Laura Bliss with City Lab. Uh, we're hearing from our uh, one of our uh, Congress people, uh, Laura, um, in terms of uh, bipartisanship to try to get these projects done. Uh, but in terms of President Trump's plan, now expected first draft in February, uh, is there going to be a lot of support from it? Um, you know, I think that remains to be seen. I think it's true that, you know, to get a real um, bipartisan bill passed, and yes, you'd need a lot, you know, more additional federal spending than, than the $200 billion that's been um, articulated by the White House so far. Um, you know, I, I, I think it, it's, it's important to point out, right, that, uh, you know, public-private partnerships, um, you know, relying on state and local governments to to bring, you know, some some perhaps new <laughs> thinking to the table in terms of financing infrastructure projects um, is is not it's not a, a bad idea, right? I mean, there there may be support for that, um, but the you know, as as Congresswoman Estes is, is pointing out, the the sheer need for spending is just immense, and it and it is getting to you know, uh, a, a point where, where safety is, is really in, in question here. Um, you know, I think the uh, American Society for Civil Engineers um, also just put out a new number that, um, you know, all told the infrastructure need in this country amounts to closer to four, four, you know, $4 trillion. So um, I think Democrats in Congress are going to want to see more money brought to the table. Um, but as far as the details of that, uh, you know, we'll just have to see. I want to thank Laura Bliss again. Uh, she writes for City Lab. That's part of the Atlantic. She covers transportation, infrastructure, and the environment. Laura, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Also, uh, Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty joined us uh, by phone, uh, representing the 5th Congressional District. Again, uh, she sits on the Problem Solvers Caucus Infrastructure Working Group, a bipartisan group in Congress, looking at ways to uh, fix uh, uh, this problem that uh, just continues to grow. We want to thank you for joining us, and we're going to tweet out a link again to that report at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to travel back to the days when the Connecticut Valley Railroad carried people and freight from old Saybrook to Hartford. We're going to hear more about the line from historian and author Max R. Miller. You can join the conversation too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We were just talking about aging infrastructure in the United States. The railroad lines that crisscrossed the U.S. played a key role in the growth of our country as settlers eager for prosperity continued their push westward. Railroads were important to towns and cities around the country, carrying goods and people. An important route in our state ran from Old Saybrook to Hartford, known as the Connecticut Valley Railroad. My next guest worked for the Valley Railroad from the 1970s to the 1990s. 81-year-old Max R. Miller is now a historian of the Connecticut Valley Railroad and the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. His new book is called Along the Valley Line, The History of the Connecticut Valley Railroad. Max, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Now, I would before I, I find out why you wrote this book, I'm always curious about when people fall in love with trains or become rail fans. When did that happen for you? About three years old. I used to, my brother and I used to sneak out from the house when we were little kids and go over to the center of town and watch the trains. What was it about a train that just mesmerized you? 
I don't know, maybe it was its size or anything, but that, when I was a little boy, they were all steam engines, so the steam engines have a lot more uh, activity and everything about them. I'm glad to hear you say three because I have a son who also at the age of three fell in love with trains. And, of course, you know the Thomas the Train. I was just going to ask you <laughs> if it was Thomas the Tank Engine. That that really uh, that really hooked him. But since then, he's often gone down to Essex, Connecticut. And I understand that that's part of where you spent your time. So first, for people who don't know about the Connecticut Valley Railroad, when we say that, what exactly are you talking about? The route was from Old Saybrook to Hartford. And then shortly afterwards, it was extended out to Fenwick, about another mile. Your book, Along the Valley Line, The History of the Connecticut Valley Railroad, uh, takes us through to before uh, the railroad was built, all the way to uh, how it's used today. So walk us through a little bit of that history, Max. Uh, Take us back to the time uh, when uh, people started to get involved with building this railroad. Who were these people? Well, the people that built the railroad, a lot of them were out of the Hartford area. But the railroad itself... It appears to me they made an effort to get at least one director from every town that it ran through. So, you know, Saybrook, Essex, Deep River, everybody had at least one director, and then some bigger towns like Middletown might have two or three. So they were just kind of playing good politics, I guess. What year are we talking about? Well, they organized in 1868, and they built it from... 1870 to 71. It took them about 15 months to build it. Were these people paid to build the railroad? Absolutely. They were. They uh, made a contract to have it done, and then the contractor subcontracted to sections of the railroad. So nobody did it all, but a lot of people worked on it. Uh, You mentioned the years that it took to build the Connecticut Valley Railroad, uh, obviously to take passengers, but what else was carried on this line? Just about everything that people wanted and used. Like in my hometown, Hickenham there, there was a Hickenham manufacturing and machinery place, and they made farm farm equipment. And also in town, there was a, a soda bottle in works, and they used to bring the bottles in by the carload. And every town had something like that, like uh, Essex, uh, Iverton is part of Essex. They had the ivory business, and they used to bring elephant tusk in by the carload. Also uh, uh, carrying the mail. The mail was carried by the uh, stagecoach, and within a very short time, a couple of weeks or so, the mail was taken away from the stagecoach and given to the railroad. And uh, I've seen a comparison where the people in Deep River were saying that they got one stagecoach of mail, one pouch of mail a day. And after the railroad started running, they ran five, six trains a day, passenger trains, they got mail on every one of them. So it, it really enhanced their mail service. Your book is filled with pictures of this time, Uh, the old stations that used to be along this line. Um, You've got great anecdotes, uh, little stories uh, about uh, not only uh, the people uh, that remember the railroad, but even uh, there was a a grave that had to be moved for the line. There were three cemeteries affected by it. Uh, 
the major one was in Middletown, which is down in the center of town, and they had to move graves. And uh, down the line, uh, Lady Fenwick's grave in Old Saber or Saber Point, that had to be moved, and it's it's about a quarter of a half, half mile from its original site, and they still keep the same stones and everything there. The interesting story on that is the stone today says 1648, and it was actually 1645. And when they were reworking the stone at some point, the stone cutter changed the date <laughs> on one letter. <laughs> and then how was that name Lady Fenwick used later? Was it one? Did it pop up as a name for a station? I thought I saw that somewhere in your book. Well, there was a... Fenwick Station, and uh, there was one, in the old days, they used to number their locomotives and also name them, and six of the locomotives on the uh, Valley Railroad were named, and one of them was the Lady Fenwick. You mentioned the ivory industry and ivory tin. What did this uh, Connecticut Valley Railroad do for other local industry once it was built? I guess it was their main source of in and out, you know, uh, before they had the railroad, they had to depend on the boats. And the boats could be tied up for at least four months in the wintertime when the river froze. Mm-hmm. Now we see the river freezing again because it, there's no longer any river traffic, or very little anyways. And uh, all of a sudden these people had a source of transportation during the wintertime. One article I read was uh, Deep River, and they were saying how the merchants all had to get their stock in for the whole winter before the before the river froze up. And you could get they could get stuff, but it, it would be like a wagon ride all day from Deep River to Hartford and back, or wherever there was train service. So it was a huge convenience to the people. How did the building of this railroad um, help the region keep up with uh, possible development in other parts of the country focused on the railroad? Well, the railroads interchange their cars. So once you have a railroad, you can start your car in your town and it can go anywhere in the system, which is was huge is is today. It's not as big today, but it's very active. A lot of people don't realize how much stuff is moving by rail today. You know, you go to your store and buy a loaf of bread, and that flour came from somewhere in the Midwest, and it came by train. The short haul, shorter hauls go to the trucks, and the long hauls go to the trains. I hope you don't mind me mentioning that you're 81 years old now. Right. I mentioned you're a historian as well as an author. What's your personal connection to the Connecticut Valley Railroad? Well, the Connecticut Valley Railroad started off with a whole bunch of volunteers trying to put a deteriorated track and stuff back together to run a steam train. And I was one of the volunteers right in the very beginning, way back about 1968, 1969, we worked on it. And it, it was something where there always seemed to be somebody in the volunteer group that had a specialty that you needed. You know, one fellow worked for Texaco uh, Lubrication, you know, the oil company, and we had to have special oil for the steam engine. He was able to 
make arrangements and everything like that. And it always seemed like there was somebody there that just picked up the slack and did what what was needed. Uh, how did the topography of the region impact uh, where the line was built? Well, the Connecticut Valley Railroad was a, had almost three miles of trestle track because it went down along the river and across the marshes. And the quickest and cheapest way to get through those marshes was to build a trestle. And then years later, they would use the train to carry earth in there to make it substantial that way. Because in the early days, the wood that they used for the trestles was not treated, so it started deteriorating very quick. You know, wood rots if it's not painted, and uh, this was not treated with creosote or any of the other treatments. So as soon as they built it, it started to deteriorate, and uh, it it was a like a summertime's activity to keep filling in the tracks. Just run a car out there and dump dirt out of it until you buried the tracks. And there's a, a good many areas on the line today that there's still a wooden trestle built, uh, buried in the side of it. I had to do work on a Chester Creek bridge when we rebuilt it. And with a clamshell, which I operated a crane, I dug into the old trestles when I started digging down into it. What else did you do with the Connecticut Valley Railroad, also serving as vice president and director? Well, I was second vice president for quite a few years and a director. And it, it, it is a private stockholder company, and I was one of the stockholders. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today I'm talking with Max R. Miller. His new book is called Along the Valley Line, The History of the Connecticut Valley Railroad. Part of the line is now used as a heritage railroad. You or your children may have taken a ride on some of the old steam trains that are still running from that station in Essex, Connecticut. When we come back from the break, we'll hear about how the Connecticut Valley Railroad went from bankruptcy to tourist attraction. And you can join the conversation, too. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On Tuesday, January 23rd at Gateway Community College, you're invited to a screening of Understanding the Opioid Epidemic. It's a new PBS documentary followed by a panel discussion. More information at WNPR.org. We hope to see you there. We've been talking about railroads, and they're still important today, carrying freight and people across the U.S. Some of the old lines are used for tourism, like the Valley Railroad, which operates out of a station in the village of Centerbrook in Essex, Connecticut. My guest is historian Max R. Miller. He became a rail fan at the age of three. He later worked for the railroad in the U.S. Army Reserves and then for the Valley Railroad in the 1970s through the 1990s. He's written a new book called Along the Valley Line, the History of the Connecticut Valley Railroad. Um, the railroad was important to industry, to move people, to move goods. When did this line um, start to run into some troubles financially? Well, the line was opened in 1871. And along came the financial panic of 1873, and it put them in bad shape, and they weren't able to pay uh, their debt. They weren't able to pay their mortgage holders and uh, bondholders and stuff, and it was uh, taken over 
by the, by the treasurer of the state of Connecticut. It was the only time that a treasurer of the state of Connecticut was the trustee of a railroad. So it, it went into that, and then it, it limped along. They, they appointed officers and whatnot. And it limped along for about 10 years, and then it was reorganized as the Hartford and Connecticut Valley Railroad. Eventually, it became known as the New Haven Railroad? Within two years after the Hartford and Connecticut got operating, the, it was becoming a big pain in the side of the New Haven Railroad because they had applied and had the charters to build the track from Hartford on north to Springfield. And that would have given them connections to the east-west trade on the Boston and Albany Railroad and it, it was supposed to cross that line and go up to Holyoke and then have connections into Canada. So when they, when they, they started to grow, and they, they actually did, uh, the New York Navy and Hartford said the easiest way to take care of this is to buy it, and then you control it. And within two years after the Hartford Connecticut Valley was organized, they, New Haven had financial control of it. Uh, some of our listeners, when they think of the train, uh, they're thinking about what it's like to ride the Metro North. How did the ride back then on the Connecticut Valley Railroad compare to what people are used to today? Well, in, back in those days, all the cars, the passenger cars, were wooden. So just the fact that they're wood, they're lighter, but they're uh, vulnerable if you have an accident because the wood just all splits up and comes apart, whereas the steel cars hang together a little better. So they were lighter, they were shorter, and uh, they were somewhat, uh, I won't say primitive, but the seating and everything in them was like rigid old grandma's chair, you know what I mean? <laughs> How much did a ticket cost? I think when they started out, it cost a dollar fifty-five to go the full length of the railroad. Usually, it started out like uh, Hartford to Wethersfield would be like fifteen cents, then Cromwell would be twenty cents, and Middletown would be twenty-five. And it seemed like every station down increased by a nickel or more. And uh, in those days, you got a discount if you bought your ticket at a station and didn't try to buy it from the conductor. I'm glad you mentioned the stations because I'm curious how many of them are still standing today. We know Essex is. Well, the station in Old Saybrook was not original. It was 1873. The line was two years old when that station was built as a union station because the Shoreline Railroad crossed the valley at that point. And then in Essex, they still, the original freight house, but that was dated the 1892, and then in Deep River, their original freight house, which was 1890. And a lot of these stations had the freight and the passenger combined in the building when they were first built, and then if the freight got big enough, they built a, a freight house just to handle that. Mm -hmm. If you come up the line, uh, there was a little station, the original station in Chester, 1871, that had been closed after four years of service and sold off. And they uh, 
that building got moved and incorporated into a house right near the where it originally stood. And when that house was being torn down, I looked at it and I said, it, it, it's got lines of a railroad station, you know, this portion of it. So we checked it out, and it was. And when we pulled the asphalt shingles off the sides of it, we found three distinct high flood water marks on it, which just made it a little bit more interesting. And it had some stenciling on the inside of it. So the people that were tearing it down said, if you want it, you can have it. So we arranged to go in there and have it pulled onto a slider truck, taken up to the tracks and put onto a flat car. We put on a flat car, and over the course of a couple of years, the volunteers rebuilt it because uh, where it hooked into the other house was just open, but there was like three sides of it there. And today it sits at, at uh, in Tylerville, the the uh, west end of the bridge that goes to the Goodspeed Opera House. It sits there, and they have labeled it the uh, Goodspeed Yard Yard Office. So it's a little supply building and everything, but it's an original building, 1871, and it sits right across the tracks from the freight house that was in Goodspeed's, and that was an original building. Mm. So there, there's two of them. Actually, they placed this building within the foundation of the Goodspeed Station. And inside of the building that's used as a gift shop today, the freight house, there's a place where they exposed the inside, uh, the interior, and a, a painter in 1880 cleaned his brush on the wall, and he did his name and he did his date. And in my research, I found Frank Sporlin, 1880, working for the Hardwick and Connecticut Valley Railroad. So that one was nailed down. And Higginham Station uh, lasted until 1966, and then there was a fire set in it and destroyed it. So that one went. And if you go to Middletown, uh, that station lasted till about 1940. But in Cromwell, the freight house is still there, and that one dates 1895. So you come up the line to Rocky Hill, and the station is still there today. It was a gift shop, and just north of it was the freight house, which partially collapsed in a snowstorm about four years ago, and the town immediately condemned it, and they tore it down. And as far as I know, those are the only original buildings left on the line. You mentioned your research. I understand there's a railroad history archive in the state. Where did you find these pictures, and where did you go to find all this information, Max? The pictures came from every historical society in the valley and some that aren't in the valley. Uh, And uh, just about everywhere. I got them from private individuals, and I got them from little collections, and there was a a historian, a Middletown historian by the name of James Russell, nicknamed Doc Ward. And when we first started working on the Valley Railroad, I he started uh, to funnel pictures to me. 
that he got most of them were Middletown area. And that kind of wet my appetite. I, I started putting little binders of photos together. And, and eventually that turned in, now there's 18 uh, binders. Every time I get 100 photos, then I start a new binder. In Hartford, it's at three, three binders now. And what will happen to all of this research that you've compiled? Well, I, I have it at home. It is all willed to the Dodd Research Center at the University of Connecticut. And uh, the, I willed it to them, and they accepted it. So when I kick the bucket, it goes to there, and it'll be available to the public as part of the uh, research center. So this book, Along the Valley Line, The History of the Connecticut Valley Railroad, really just a snapshot of all of the information that you've compiled. What I did, I went through all the newspapers that I could, uh, Penny Press, New Era, different ones, from 1868 on, if they existed then, and the ones that came in and went out again in between. And I copied every story that touched the railroad in any way. And when I say that way, if a tramp was killed along the line or something, it was recorded, I recorded it. And that database is over 5,000 pages today. And at the same time, I kept track of all the individuals. So I made like a roster of the people, employees, uh, anything that touched the railroad. And in some cases, you get somebody that's young and becomes a conductor or something, and you follow them their whole life because I'm going through all these newspapers. And, of course, when they die, you get their obituary that gives you a lot more information. Some of those people have like a page and a half in my roster. And then other ones that come out of... uh, a, pay, a single payroll or something. It's just a name and, and what town he worked in, in in that month of that year. But uh, that roster is over 400 pages. This is where we live. In studio with me is a railroad historian, Max R. Miller. His new book is called Along the Valley Line, The History of the Connecticut Valley Railroad. Let's talk about the Valley Railroad today. Uh, again, many of our listeners are probably familiar that it's a tourist attraction. Um, how how were volunteers and others able to continue uh, this well, railroad? The original group that volunteered and got the railroad going eventually split away and became the Naugatuck Railroad over in, in the Naugatuck Valley. I've been and, to that Thomaston Station. Yes, right. <laughs> And uh, another group was formed that was called themselves the Friends of the Valley Railroad. And they're the ones that do volunteer work in, in the shops on uh, one night a week. And they do go out on the weekends and work on the track. They kind of help uh, enlarge and en- enhance the railroad. And they're, they're all railroad fans, and they like what they're doing. And it's it's just a nice group. Uh, when you were a kid, you remember the steamies. And from there, uh, the diesel trains that now uh, run along these lines. What's your favorite train? Do you have one? I don't know. When I was a kid up in New York State, and they were still running steam engines, my buddy that lived down the street a little ways, 
his father was a conductor on the line, and my neighbor that was next next door neighbor, their uncle was an engineer on the line, and he used to run the uh, local freight train every other Saturday. And if my buddy and I were down there at the station, they would put us up in the engine and let us ride to the next station, which was nine miles away at Armenia, New York. And we had this experience or one one time I would be on the engineer's seat with him and the, the other person would be on the fireman's seat. And then if you got on the on the fireman's seat, you got to ring the bell and stuff like that. But it's experiences that you can't get anymore and you'll never forget. What made you write this book, Max? I don't know. As I gathered the information, people kept saying to me, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a book. And then Oliver Jensen, who was a, a, an author in his own right, uh, said to me one day, he says, you've got enough stuff to write at least three books anyways. And I don't know, they kept nudging me, and I, I kept putting stuff together, and finally I started doing the text. I just started putting the, the history together as it ha- had developed. And... Uh, I was fortunate I had some very good people that edited it for me and helped me with it. Uh, I'm really not a writer, and English is not my subject, but uh, with the help of others, I was able to get it together. Uh, your book, I think, does a pretty good job explaining the history with some interesting anecdotes along the way, and the pictures um, from all of these different collections yeah. um, are just you know, lovely to see. But what I also thought was really interesting is when I mentioned how the Valley Railroad has turned into a tourist attraction, it's also a place that um, movies have, there have been scenes filmed. Yes, there's can been you, a number of movies. Yeah. Can you tell us about some of those? Well, the one I worked with was called Ragtime, and uh, it kind of didn't go anywhere as a movie, but they had a huge budget, we were told, something like $46 million. And when they came to town, they spent money like it was water. Uh, the driveway in, in the parking lot was a little bit dry and dusty. They brought the fire department up and gave them $1,000 to wet down the driveway. And, and uh and when it was all over, they came around and they tucked hundred-dollar bills in our pockets. So I, <laughs> it was really, it was really an experience. But what happened to us there that I remember is the people that do the leg work, you know, the set workers and stuff like that. When they when they were leaving, they told us, "Just don't worry, we'll be back," because. They had had a good experience with us. Uh, nobody tried to jip them or anything. And, and in most cases, we always came in ahead of their schedule on filming that we produ- produced what they wanted quickly. Other movies uh, that our listeners may be familiar with, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, part of that was filmed at, at Yeah, Essex. but that was after I retired, so I didn't get in on that one. Uh <laughs> I remember we had one called Morning Becomes Electra. It was about a Civil War officer coming back from the Civil War, and uh, that was filmed in Deep River. There's something really nostalgic about being at a train station, seeing an old steamy. Well, a lot of people call it the Essex time machine, 
that it, 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 it they try the best they can, colors of equipment, uh, lettering of equipment, uniforms, and everything else to reproduce about 1930 when the railroads were pretty close to their heyday. And that's, that's the experience they try to give the public is, is the equipment and everything is of that period. Do you still ride along the Valley Railroad today? Uh, when they have like a stockholders meeting or something like that or something that's held on the train. You don't take your wife to the dinner train? Absolutely. <laughs> that's a nice one. Yeah. It's, it, of course, if you've worked with it all the time, some of it get, kind of gets old. You know, you've done it and you've done it several times or whatever. But when the occasion arises, yes, I go on the train. Historians will obviously love this book, Max, for all the reasons I mentioned. But what about young people? What do you want them to take away from the history of the Connecticut Valley Railroad? Well, you're going to run into interest. And you're going to run into a few people or some people that are interested in the railroad. A lot of people don't realize how big the entire industry is. There's model railroads by the millions. And the, the people put a lot of money into them, but they, the ones that are really uh, fanatics about it, they, they make sets that are unbelievable. You know, you can use them in a movie in some cases. I mentioned my son is a rail fan, and he's got to set old HO trains uh, uh, in our house. Uh, but I know that he'll enjoy listening to you talk about uh, the history of the Connecticut Valley Railroad. Uh, Max Miller, thank you again for coming in. We really appreciate it. Well, it's been a pleasure on my part, too. Again, uh, Max's book is called Along the Valley Line, The History of the Connecticut Valley Railroad. We appreciate it. Thanks again. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.